Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Thanks for joining us again for the Black Letter Podcast. Today on our show, we have Mo. And Mo perhaps needs no introduction because he's pretty famous in his own right. But I'm going to let Mo talk about his business before we get into what Mo does, because I am fascinated by it personally. And I think it's probably one of the most important shows I've done. Something that I think not only lawyers, but accountants, doctors, anybody who provides services, a professional, I've said this a million times and I can't say it anymore and probably Mo would agree with me, but lawyers should be doing law and accountants should be doing accounting. And you know where they fall flat is when they try to do things they, don't, they aren't professionals at. And that's why you hire people or find people like Mo to help you with things. And we're going to talk about business development and marketing yourself and Mo's book and uh, Mo's services, which are, in fact, our firm has engaged as well. So Mo, uh, without further ado, I'm going to do a crappy job of introducing your business. Why don't you tell me about your business, what you do? And I know what you do a little bit because you've been doing it for our firm, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, awesome. Thanks, Todd. My name is Mo Bunnell. I'm founder and CEO of a company called Bunnell ID Group. And what we do is help people that have a super deep expertise that also have to promote themselves or get people to say yes to hiring for them for their expertise. So what's interesting is, of course, that's lawyers, right? There's a ton of lawyers that everybody in lawyer or really broader professional services fits with that. So we work with a lot of law firms. We work with Boston Consulting Group. We work with Sotheby's, the high-end art auctioneers. That's an amazing gig to train their folks all over the world. Publicists, marketing agencies. I was an actuary. So that's how I sort of got into this as I was an actuary was pretty good at math and actuarial stuff, but I had to learn how to, how to find people to purchase it. But we also work with a lot of big service-based companies. So big healthcare companies, big outsourcers, basically anybody that has a deep expertise and has to find other people to say yes to their ideas or their expertise. So Mo, how would you summarize what it is that you do for these companies? Is it marketing? Is it self-development? Is it somewhere in between? Is it the, the stepchild of these things? What, what is it? How would you classify if, if I said to you, Mo, what are you going to do for us? What we do is we help people with that deep expertise that joined it for the love of their craft. You know, say a lawyer, they, they went to law school and went through all that pain of going through law school, passing the bar to really help people with the big brainiac expertise. Right. Same with a lot of these, everybody else is in professional services. But what getting an MBA or going to law school or passing the actuarial exams or whatever doesn't teach you is how you influence others, especially in a really positive way. So a lot of times, somebody with a deep, deep expertise can sort of see the future of somebody else. They've been down that road before. They've, they've handled that issue, that matter. 
Um, but to be able to know the skill of how to help move that person to act, to right. see their own future, but to, to potentially engage the expert to help them with that future or to help them in any other way, those are different skills. And there we call it business development, but business development is, is worthy of practice and the attention that everybody's core expertise is. They're just never taught how to do it. And that's what we do. So, so when we talk about individual business development, what are the problems that service professionals run into that you see over and over and over again? I know that a lot of my partners, part of the problem is not a lack of desire, it's inertia, right? And it's overcoming, you know, I guess it's a law of the universe, like physics, right? But it's overcoming that inertia. But that's my personal observation. What, what is it that you see that, that you run into? Yeah, well, I think you're exactly right. What can happen, and this sort of builds on the inertial idea, is everything in the world pulls the expert away from business development. Billable time as the number one thing. That's axiomatic and that's the biggest challenge. I totally agree. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, every, no, you're right on it. So like every morning you're waking up saying, how, how can I build time today? I got to hit my 1,500, my 2,000 hours a year, whatever it is, right? So that's one thing. But then there's that lateral partner that somebody asked you to interview. There's that associate they asked you to mentor. Like all this stuff is not only pulling you away from BD, but it all has immediate gratification. Somebody says, thank you after the lateral partner interview. They hug you after you mentored the associate and kept them in the firm. Business development has no immediate gratification. You can send the perfectly crafted email to somebody with a clever PS at the end, and you don't hear anything for six months, maybe never. You don't know they took it and forwarded your advice to 20 other people in their firm you know, in the legal department, and that it had a big impact, but nobody ever tells you ever for years later. So we've got to develop our own habits that have sort of self-reinforcing mechanisms for business development. That's one of the things we teach because everything else in the world is more immediate and more gratifying than business development, even though business development might be the most important thing for the rest of your career. Gotcha. So, so really, it sounds like one of the biggest things you're seeing is the lack of understanding that it's a long game. Yes, that that's exactly right. Especially in the services sector, is a long tail, not an instant gratification, not I'm selling you a cookie and you're giving me a dollar for my cookie. It's I'm telling you about how well I make cookies and I want you to buy batches from my cookie factory five years from now when you're dissatisfied with your current cookie factory. That's a horrible metaphor. No, I love it. I love it. Let me jump in. I'll be logical yeah. though. In addition to that was a good metaphor, I'll tell you why. One of the techniques we, we teach, and this is in um, chapter five of our book, The Snowball System, in great detail, it's called the give-to-get method. And uh, what the give-to-get method says is that if you want to capitalize on all the science of influence, which, is, which was probably most famously documented by Dr. Robert Cialdini at Arizona State, he sold over 3 million copies of his book called Influence. And the give-to-get method is the only thing in business development I've ever seen that hits all of Cialdini's six influential factors in the human mind. And okay. what it does for experts is it says, hey, instead of talking about how great you are, go ahead and give a prospective client an hour of your time. Even if you, even if you can't get into details because, you, because they haven't sent the files over, or signed an engagement letter, you haven't done conflict, whatever it is. You can at least talk in high level about what's going on in the marketplace in a way that would help them. Back to the cookie metaphor, instead of talking about how great your cookie is, you actually give them a cookie. And they taste it themselves and like, oh my gosh, this cookie is great. Or this person's big brain, their expertise is great. We need to hire them. We're We're getting better advice from them than the people we hire. 
we need to switch to these folks. But unless you give them the cookie or your time, it's really hard for them to ascertain who's better. So yeah. see, the cookie metaphor rocks. So, so I, I like what you said. And, and anecdotally, for whatever it's worth, I've experienced that myself. The challenge for lawyers, though, and service people, I think, and I'm sure you have a fantastic answer to this, is that you can't generally screen people effectively if you tell everyone, I'll give everybody who calls an hour. And, and I, I say that because that is a challenge. Most of the time, your staff can screen the, screen the tinfoil hat like, you know, I'm going to patent a cure for cancer with lemon zest. That happened once, actually, here. They can screen that person out, right? So we don't have to talk to them. But the ch- bigger challenge is somebody who's got a, you know, a t-shirt business or a small like restaurant idea, but they're like, I've started a restaurant and I need to meet with someone and you meet with them. And it turns out they just want to know how to do it. And they're milking you for whatever they can get. And it's not like a a true. So, so how do you, what's your advice on how you filter those clients or how you determine, because I do give to get, and I give to corporate counsel and anybody who I know has got juice, I give to right away. And I think most lawyers will. The challenge right. of those people in between, where you're trying to build new business relationships, engage, and gauge the value of that potential call or that potential consult. Well, how do you screen that? I'll describe it math a little bit. So if you think sure. of a classic normal curve, you got your MBA, you can, we can talk like this. There's, it's sort of easy to, to, to lop off the endpoints, you know, the people that there's just no way there would ever be a client. And you can help them and refer them to somebody else. And then right. there's the no-brainers, right? So you're like doubling down on those. To your point, it's the middle that's tricky. Yep. So in our training class, this is in um, module 14 of our uh, 17 modules in our full three-day marquee training, but it's called targeting. And what you do is you can go through a process to figure out what three to five things strongly correlate to your perfect client. So it okay. might be organizational size. It might be revenue. You know, It just depends on what your expertise is. Some lawyers are looking for startups because that's what they do. Other people really need big institutional clients because that's what they do. So anyway, you come up with three to five criteria that you think would perfectly uh, correlate to your great clients. And then when an incoming request comes in or a referral from an accountant or whatever, you can get on a phone call and help somebody for 10 minutes to do whatever they need to do. And then be able to be clear with them that says, hey, I really focus on these three things. So gotcha. if you're those three things, we can go further. If not, I, I'm not going to be able to help you much. I'm not going to be reliably available for you, things like that. But I've got folks who can help you. So you're basically asking a question version of your three criteria. You figure out if somebody's a 10 out of 10 on those or a one in your mind. And then that's how you can quickly figure out in that middle of that normal curve where somebody is. And if they're not good, a good fit, you've, you've probably developed relationships where you can steer them to somebody who you can and, and refer them off so they still feel helped, but it's not you. And if they are a good fit because you discover some things, you're like, okay, I'm all in. Let's schedule an hour call in the next week or so to tackle this particular IP issue or whatever. So it seems like taking that just a step further on an organizational scale, right? So that is fantastic for, for me if I'm a a lawyer and I'm take looking at every consult that comes in or my staff are like cutting off the real, real crazies. But organizationally, it seems like you could do this by kind of sector or tranche, right? We could have the estate group or the trademark group or the yep. patent group having their different individual criteria at the client services level, which is lopping off the ends. Yep. Then when we get to the lawyer, what we've been doing, and I'm interested on your take on this, because this is very controversial. 
not controversial, it's much talked about and debated in our industry. We charge for our consults. And the reason we do that is because anybody who's going to pay a few hundred dollars for half an hour or an hour of time or whatever it is, is somebody that we want. That's kind of how we've determined that's somebody that we probably want to talk to because they value the time and the advice. Yes, giving it to them. And we are giving them a lot for that time. We're giving them value out of that. But what's your thought on charging versus providing it for free? And, and hold off on the extreme, or, or I think we can all agree that if it's like, general counsel for Microsoft. And they're like, I want to talk. You're not going to charge that guy. Right. If, if it's a tech company and it's like middle market and they do a couple of million a year, you know, you want to talk to them and see if they're just kicking the tires with 50 lawyers. Cause I run into that a lot too. Like, yeah, we've talked to three other lawyers, but I charge everybody. So they've paid me at least for that time. And I give them value for it, but I, but that's been our model. Do yep. you think that's just helpful or detrimental or, you know, where do you fall in that? Well, I don't think there's any black or white answer on this one, partially because it's dependent on, to your point, of who's the incoming call coming from or the referral right. or whatever. And then the other one is um, how much time you have and more of an outbound thing and what the practice area is and things like that. How many tire kickers you get? If you get a lot of tire kickers, I would definitely charge for a consult. But, but the basic idea from the scientific perspective is that the research shows that people will pay more attention to something they pay for. Yep. Even if that is a very low level, like even at $10, I'm not saying you charge $10 for your yep. consult, no. but, but the research goes all the way down to like one, five, $10 increments that somebody will pay immensely more attention. They'll listen more. The research shows they remember more from the conversation if they pay a very small amount for something than if they, they don't pay anything. So you no, know, I love that. You're, you're supporting everything I'm trying to convince everybody of all the time. There, good. There you go. You can send this to everybody in the firm. So the, the core of all this is whether it's free or whether it's a, a, a nominal amount or something easy to purchase, you want to systematize it. So right. you want to have a, some kind of algorithm, you know, basically come up with your three criteria, like you said, either at the individual partner level, at the practice area, or the firm level, and then be able to screen something coming in. And if something says a 10 out of 10, you're like, okay, it's the GC for Microsoft. We're not going to ask them to pay X hundred dollars for right. this. Yeah. But... For people in the middle that you're not sure, you can be super clear on what your criteria is. Who are you for? Who do you really shine for? Have right. them pay a nominal amount. That's going to that's gonna get them in the system. They're going to pay for it. They're going to self-select out if they're a tire picker. They're going to pay more attention if they do pay. And then you're off to the races from there. So in any moment, basically, if you can skip the free version of the give to get and go to the nominal fee version, you're better off. Good. Okay. So... So that's always, that's been my philosophy for the last 10-ish years. And it's been successful for me. Yes. Uh, but I still have some partners who came from smaller firms before they joined us who say, well, I like to give anybody 10 minutes. And I think that's self-defeating, but I, I'm not going to bring our debates up here in more detail. But I, I tend to find that they're just, okay, I got 10 minutes from you. I'm going to get 10 minutes from five other lawyers too, and then compare them. As opposed to, all right, well, I paid for your advice. I'm just going to go with your advice. So that's kind of been my approach. So another species of that, I have another question for you, Mo. Yep. And hopefully you're not giving away too much for free here, but I, but I appreciate it because I'm super interested. So we also have uh, an internal struggle in the firm, not really struggle because our firm is, is fairly unique in that each partner can kind of set their own rates and their own kind of, you know, how they charge clients. And I tend to tell my partners that if you've been practicing for 30 years, you have a 
MS in biotech and an MBA and you've done 100 trials and you've won most of them, you can charge in the, you know, a, a fairly high rate or at least a reasonable rate comparable to a bigger firm. And still less than most of the bigger firms we compete with. But a lot of my partners say, no, 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 we have to charge a lower rate or we're not going to get the client. And I'll just tell you again, anecdotally or experientially, I've increased my rates two years ago, fairly high, probably more than most of the, everybody in my firm. And nobody's ever said no to me, not once. I, I find that I'm actually getting more traction with clients and I'm more desired, which seems counterintuitive. And I'm wondering if, if that's something you've seen before, if it makes sense. I mean, I can certainly justify it because I'm still less than an equivalent of me at Cooley by half, probably. Right. But experientially, I'm equal apples to apples. So, but my partners seem to think, well, we know we need to be at that, like, you know, below $500 mark all the time in, in some cases, because that's, but, you know, there's a value of the hour. So I, I don't know, Let, I, I'm talking too much. So what do you think? Well, you're right. Is the short answer <laughs> that uh, the, yeah, the research like the best podcast ever? I know every, you're right on everything. It's unbelievable. But if somebody huh. wants the backup on this, I'm trying to. I'm grabbing the chapter number, but chapter um, eight in the Snowball System. It's called okay. "Closed Closing the Book on Closing the Deal," which right. I thought that was a pretty clever title. Um, my editor actually suggested it, or I'd take credit. But "Closing the Book on Closing the Deal." And the idea of what that, that chapter covers, resolving objections and a bunch of other sort of later stage things, but one of them is money. And what the research shows is how we talk about money is actually more important than the dollars themselves. It's in our intonation. It's in our confidence. Okay. And to your exact point, um, what, there's seven financial or uh, mental heuristics around finances and money that are in that chapter. And we, we distilled literally hundreds of research papers down to these seven that are the most important for, for people that, that we serve, experts that have to get a yes. And one of the seven is what costs more is more desirable. And I'm just hearkening to MBA, which, which or, or to business school, which didn't really deal with law per se. Right. But that's snob good. I mean, lawyers are, uh, and we say a snob good, like why you pay more for a Ralph Lauren shirt that's the same as the Gap shirt, but it's got a little pony on it. Yeah. And it's the same shirt, but you yeah. pay triple. Yeah. So, because people are like, yep, I paid for that. I've got that lawyer. So that is essentially the same theory, right? It's exactly the same series. So a, a great example is Lexus versus Toyota. I mean, there's certain models that are the exact same car, just with a right. different finish and they cost almost double or 50% more. So right. there's so many examples similar to what you talked about with the shirt. And the mental heuristics are so powerful because they're usually right. So when we're trying to cut through chaos and find a signal in all the noise, we rely on these little mental shortcuts. Mental heuristics is the fancy word for it because they're usually right. So the idea of what costs more is more desirable. The flip of that that our spouses say to us when we mess it up is you get what you pay for. So right. we have these common sayings that actually reinforce it all the time that in real life, when we're purchasing something, we get it. But when we're selling ourselves, our confidence isn't, isn't high enough for most people. You're, you're not falling into this trap. But most lawyers and accountants, especially, I see more than consultants even, although they have some issues with it too. Most lawyers and accountants especially fall into the trap of, well, if I want to win the work, I've got to lower my price because that will help the client. But in actuality, they can be harming the client because the client won't pay his attention as much or won't choose them as often as if they're premium. So how do I get my partners to believe this? Like, I'm just saying it because it's my experience. Like everything you've said, 
it, how do I convince them of this? Is that a core? I mean, I, I would like them to read your book. I'm never going to get them to do that. Probably. I bought your book. And, and it's interesting that I haven't read it yet, to be fair, but it's interesting. The things you're telling me about it are very in, like exactly in line with what I've just had to muddle through and figure out by trial. Right. How do I create that confidence in a, a partner who is skill level? I will just tell you some of my partners, 40 years, former department of justice, like yeah. skilled. You, and, and, you know, when Georgetown tax LLM, but they're like, nope, I can't charge more than this. I'm like, my God, man, you're worth more than me. Double. We have our podcast too. And one of the recent interviewees was James Clear, who sold about 2 million copies of his book, Atomic Habits. So he's a deep habit expert. Okay. And I've known James for a long time. So it was really fun to mash up the Snowball System, our book, and Atomic Habits, his book on, this, on the podcast. That particular episode will help you with this exact idea. And our podcast is called Real Relationships, Real Revenue. And it's episode three that, that James and I go back and forth. What, one of the things that James said, and I had a friend of mine, well, we get a lot of watchers, but because it's a video podcast, but one of the things he said is when he was watching it, he saw me like lean back in my chair like that when James said something, and it was on this exact issue. I had never thought of it quite this way before. What James said is a lot of people think about habits or like our own identity, especially changes by some big cataclysmic event that all of a sudden we feel like in this case, we're worth double our current rate or something. Where identity shifts actually happen is in very small uh, micro changes over time. So what we would want to do in working what we do with, with working with law firms and accountants and consultants is just teach them the seven mental heuristics of pricing, how you talk about money is more important than the money. Okay. Get them to try moving their rates up 5%, 6%, whatever, whatever it feels outside their comfort zone. They've got to commit to trying it for a couple months. You know, you are going to do this. And it is, they're going to be nervous. They're going to be scared. They're going to try it. And Tom, like you experienced, it's going to work. So then three months later, like, huh, I raised my raise 10%. Nobody flinched but that one person. And they were never going to hire me anyway. Uh, Maybe I should do another 10%. So the identity of the value of your time changes slowly over time by making micro improvements. And, but pushing yourself outside your comfort zone to do it. And slowly over time, you realize, huh, I am worth X hundred dollars an hour. And I used to be X divided by two. So I know you help individuals with these things. So you go in and you talk about the snowball method and changing your habits on a partner by partner basis. And you know, we, you've talked to our firm. We have 30 partners-ish, something like that. 30 yep. partners. a lot of people that we've got to work with. So the other thing that I found, and I don't know if I am stepping outside of what's kind, but I found that of the 30 or of the 70 some lawyers at the firm, there are probably three or four that are comfortable with or confident with just sales general. There are probably 60 some. I'm sort of fortunate I fall into that maybe a little bit, but there are 60 some that are want to be, or maybe 50 that want to be and like 10 or 12 that have no interest. But there are about 50 that want to be, but just don't, the personalities, they're not there. And that's fine. But how do they make the sale without having that natural inclination to want to do things like that? No, I, I, I get it. What we see is when we work with an entire firm or organization, if, it, if it's not professional services, is putting people through a transformative experience that includes two big things. One is training. So everything that's in the snowball system We've got in these 
fancy binders that are super dynamic and people actually go through exercises. They spend over half the time in the class actually working on the skills, like on this pricing skills, they would map out a conversation they're going to have with a client next week on raising their rates, right? So they're, they're spending over half the time in class working on it. And then we pair that with coaching typically over about six months. And what training's great for is moving a lot of people forward a little bit together, common playbook, vernacular, tools, techniques, job aids. But what's coaching is great for is like in the trenches, they've got a meeting next Tuesday. How do they use one of the tools? Okay. And it's over that, it's really in micro shifts over a period of time that people A, realize they can do business development and B, realize how to do the different tools, you know, if this, then that kind of algorithms, just like they do in Give, you know, running a deposition or getting ready for trial or filing a patent or whatever, like they've got that down. There's an equivalent to whatever their core expertise is in business development. They just need to be shown the way. And that's what we do. Now, how about Mo? And this is probably, there's no good answer for this that I have even ever conceived of. And everything you're telling me about these micro moves, that's new to me. That's fantastic. Thank you. That's actually super helpful because we have a range of people who are partners who are in their early 40s and partners who are in their late 70s. And it's yep. just a range of human experience, if you can imagine, from dictaphone and, you know, I don't know, old green lamps to uh, people who are relatively comfortable with this thing called the internet. So how do we move those other 10% or 20% who don't want to develop business? Do we just say, okay, well, you don't want to, I don't know how to motivate people who don't want to be necessarily motivated. Yeah. And I, even with, comp, we've tried with compensation. We've tried with, you know, maybe gamifying it. We, but there are just some people like, I just want to do work. I mean, is that just a personality thing? You leave them, should I start leaving them alone? Because I am bugging people, I know. I think there's two, it's a great question and everybody, everybody struggles with this. There's two options. And, and these can go in succession. So it's maybe not A or B, but it's A then B. What we find is we've got a change management strategy that we call the red velvet rope strategy. And what we do is when we do the training and coaching, we usually allow, and by the way, this works for any change you're trying to do at the firm or with your clients. So basically you take something that a lot of people would want, say it's our training in our system. And let's say I'm just making up numbers, but let's say 50 people would love to have it. Will you only let 15 or 20 in the first round? Okay. So So that here's good. Yes. Yeah. So that's actually one of Cialdini's tying back to an earlier thing we talked in the, in the podcast. Scarcity is one of the strongest drivers of human behavior, as, as Dr. Robert Cialdini found. People want more of what there's less of. So the red velvet rope strategy says you let a smaller amount in the first wave as can be in. And then, and then after that, you get such a great brand about the program or whatever change you're trying to make that you allow a bigger group in well, that extends the group out of people that want it. Because gotcha. when 20 people love it, that's fine. Now 30 people want it. Now, but now the first program goes, well, now 80 people want it. Now you move out to 40, then 120. So A is use scarcity and actually a, a go slow to go fast kind of approach to get people to want in. And then B, back to B, is there's still probably a certain number of percentage of people that just still don't want to do business development. That's cool. But what most firms are going to is you can still do the work, but we're going to raise your billable hour requirement and you're not going to be an equity partner. Yeah. And that, that makes sense. Sure. We've heard of that trend in, in industry, but that's not just hitting in law, that's hitting in accounting, 
consulting, right. architecture, engineering, everything. Business That's development, to tie a bow on it, business development is becoming a strong requirement of being an equity partner in a professional service firm. Bringing that business development thing to a complete, I'm, I'm a little ADHD sometimes, but it's just, this is hitting my mind and I've got you here and it's fantastic. You're just hitting all these interesting answers to things I've always wondered about developing business in the time of Zoom. So I have, uh, for example, the next week, a meeting with head IP counsel, a huge multinational company, because a buddy from law school is their US corporate counsel, right? It's great. Fantastic. But we're doing it by Zoom. And I am an in-person, like I like to shake hands. I like to maybe bring something or have a drink with somebody. And I've got to do it like this. And so, and, and I've been doing it like this. It's just, to me, it's not as effective or as long-term. How do I, what's the best thing I can do or the things I should think about to make a connection with somebody over this kind of, you know, flat two-dimensional, I guess, non-germy interface? <laughs> I love it. I love your choice of language. It's really clever. I'll go high level and then detail. High level, the people we're seeing. <laughs> Wear the mask. Sorry. This is. <laughs> you surprised me. I looked down to collect my thoughts, and all of a sudden, you had a mask on. I love it. <laughs> well, it's making you comfortable because it's like. <laughs> I feel safer though. Okay. I feel safer. Here, here with I did notice you coughed a lot. No, just joking. You didn't cough. <laughs> okay, so high level, the people we're seeing winning in this in this new virtual world in the middle of this pandemic are the folks that are adapting to the changes faster. And you're okay. bringing up these exact things, right? So some things are harder in the pandemic. We can't fly to New York City and take somebody out to a fancy or, or take Amtrek up and take somebody to a fancy steakhouse. We can't go to the HLA conference we used to go to. There's stuff we can't do, but there's stuff that are actually easier. It's You'll be able to do this meeting wherever this person is and instead of flying somewhere the night before, making sure you get in on time and taking a full two days to get there and back to have a one-hour meeting, you can actually do it in one hour. That lets you fill up the rest of that time. The other thing that's easier is finding commonality. So there's a bunch of research Dr. Jerry Berger out of Santa Clara has found that people spend more money with those they like. And the number one correlation to spending more, to likability and spending more money is commonality. So we're getting, in many cases, I know you're at the office, but or you have a really fancy home office, but we're able to see inside people's homes. We're able to bond. People bond in times of stress. So asking people how their weekend was, you're a lot more likely to get an authentic answer now than we were a year ago, where it was sort of a throwaway question. So now I'm to details. What you're looking to do on the Zoom call is find anything, ask really thoughtful questions, look at what's in the background, how they're... Find any clue you can to find commonality, test it, ask the quote. Oh, it looks like you got a picture in the background and you went to, where, are, you, are you in Rome there? I was just there three years ago. So you're just finding anything personally professional that's finding commonality. And then you're able to follow up on email and other means later to reinforce that. And we found that, or the research is not us, but we found it too. The research shows the more you have in common with somebody, the more threads you're weaving in a rope, if you will, the more they likely like you and the more likely they are to, to give you business. So I tell my lawyers to do the same thing. It's hard, but I will, for example, I have LinkedIn stalk people before I talk to them. You should. They were in the army because I was in the army and that's an easy, anybody yep. in the military would be like, oh, do you know, or remember, yeah. or I can use acronyms. 
and be silly. I have a client whose son fences. I was a varsity fencer, which is weird, but we're actually, he's been my client now 15 years. So I tell people this all the time, but a couple of questions. Right now, I look at LinkedIn. I don't usually go to the Facebook level and I don't cyberstalk them much more than looking at their LinkedIn profile, seeing if we have some connections in common, and then trying to figure out why we have them in common and seeing where they went to school and maybe something like military or something like that. Are there other ways? Are there better ways to try to find? I mean, looking in behind their wall, that's like high level stuff. That's like next level stuff, right? You have to have A, you have to have really good eyes because I can't I see your books back there. They're tiny. But are there other ways that you think you can kind of prepare for this Zoom meeting where you, I mean, I try to find commonality in every meeting before I go. And when I was flying to New York to meet with that client, I would have spent the plane trip looking them up and like preparing like, okay, this company is really concerned about this. And this is the industry they're in and they don't want to touch that. You know, you do all that as you fly up. That's kind of nice actually. But now it's like, all right, I've got this meeting a week from now and uh, I don't have dedicated time to prepare for it, but I'm going to go ahead and cyberstalk them a little. I feel like I'm losing something in the experience of this, but what, what do you suggest to people? You're on the right track. So while you might've done that on the flight, you should, in your intuitions right here, put some dedicated time on your calendar to, to look up um, stuff and plan for some phone call time too. So once you get to LinkedIn level, you can start to see, oh, wow, they worked at uh, CVS or whatever. I know some other folks that work at CVS. I wonder if they know them. You know, it looked like they worked around the same time. So to the extent you can not only do some research, LinkedIn's perfect, Facebook is creepy to your point. You don't want to quote like, wow, it looked like you're... <laughs> yeah, I won't even say creepy stuff, but you can imagine. But uh, yeah, staying, at, staying on LinkedIn level is perfect. But then planning a little bit of time for follow-up to check with the people that know and love you. Do you know this person? Have you heard of them? Whatever. One of the most important things about commonality is people. So your army example is so great. You, if you can say you're both in the army and do you know so-and-so is awesome. So you're trying to orchestrate that kind of thing through the rest of your network. I get the sense you have a pretty broad, broad network. So it's likely you'll find somebody that knows this person. And then when you meet them in Zoom, say, hey, do you know Jane? I was just having to catch up with her. And I noticed you worked together at CVS a couple of years ago. That's pretty cool. And as soon as you do that, everything just changes. You've probably seen it on a call where they could walk on that call thinking or log in thinking, what am I doing again? Who is this person? And in the first three minutes, it totally changes just because you knew somebody in common. All of a sudden, you're an authentic, genuine human being. So you're doing the right thing. And maybe I think in this age of virtual, we've got to be diligent enough to spend a little more time blocking off time to do that and do it really well. So when you enter, you can not only ask some thoughtful questions around the business stuff, but some personal things too. Love all of that. And I, I found Mo just, again, one of my favorite things that I've had somebody say to me after a meeting was, and I don't know if it's great, they said, I thought this was going to be a complete waste of time, but this is actually very valuable. We'll follow <laughs> up with you. So I don't know if I felt like, wait, you th- really? You thought it was a waste of time before I walked in here? That kind of sucks. But it was nice that he said it to me, I guess. I can tell you why they said that if you're interested. Sure. Yeah, I am interested. I yeah, and then, we'll, and then be ready for that question because I sense you got a good one. But this will this will reconcile it for you. Sure. What we all think when we go in a meeting like that is they're judging that based on us, like we were going to be a waste of time. But there's a psychological principle called consequence history. And it means the sum total of all the things I've experienced like this are going to drive those, the, the history of consequence are going to drive my expectation. Okay. So I love Marvel uh, movies and superhero movies. 
well, once the first two or three were really good, I'm, I'm excited about the fourth one, right? But if you had some, but DC movies, not so good, right? So at least in my opinion. So after I watched the first couple and they stunk, then I'm expecting it to be bad. So they weren't comparing you against you. They were comparing you against all the other people that didn't add value that were lawyers pitching for work or whatever. And then you wrote, and then you added tons of value. And they're like, wow, I'm surprised. I like this person. Ah, so that's so that's a good thing. It went on to my next question while you're in that meeting. And it's something that I try to do. I think it's very hard to do. But strategically, I've walked into many a meeting where I'll have a slide deck or I'll have some kind of plan. And the client will go off on like some right angle or some other angle, maybe even 180 degrees and say, actually, this, or they give you some kind of cue, they're interested in something else. And I will, this is a, a, a comment from my old cavalry unit. We said Semper Gumby, kind of making fun of Marines at the time, but Semper Gumby is the flexible green guy. So we're always, <laughs> right? I like so, it. So I was trying to be flexible in a meeting like that green guy and try, and I'll shift with the client, even if I kind of don't know what I'm doing. And I don't know that Semper Gumby is proper Latin for always flexible. I'm pretty sure it's not, but that's just something I say. But that's kind of how I react in the middle of a meeting to a client's new question, new tangent, like, well, let's talk about that. Here's what I know, but I'll get back to you because I'm not ready for it. And I will skip like 20 of my slides. And I try, I mean, I usually try to do like five slides. I try not to go over that because death by PowerPoint, I've been on the other end. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm trying to convince more people of that too. Maybe you have science on... Too many PowerPoint slides. Or my other pet peeve, and maybe have science on this, I argue with people, stop putting so much on a PowerPoint slide. Picture three or four words, but talk about it. And we have arguments about, well, they need all the information when you give them the deck and they can walk away. So I I don't know if if there's a resolution for that argument either. But I have science. You ready? I'm ready. And then we'll we'll get to the shift idea because that's important too. The same part of the brain... The exact same part of the brain processes words that are being said in reading. So when we have lots of words on PowerPoint slides or lots of slides, we are taking the attention off of us Okay. because the person is having to vacillate with reading the words and listening to the words in in all the the, uh, functional MRI uh, blood oxygenation in our brain stuff shows that we can only do one of those two. So it's actually stressful and competing. And you can imagine if you were trying to listen, like if you ever try to listen to a TV show and do work, you're sort of doing half things, but you can't do one of either really well. That's what we're doing to our clients when we have really heavy and lots of PowerPoint slides. So we're much better off having minimalistic slides and getting the focus on us because that's where they're actually seeing us as human beings. Totally agree with you. I I feel like the world should know this, but I feel like the world doesn't practice this. (laughs) It doesn't. All right. So then you, you brought up the shift question. Tell me about that again, because I think it's really good. Yeah. So my question is, strategically, do you give people... I, I feel like it's hard to identify the shift. It's hard to get out of your rote, I wrote this PowerPoint deck and I don't want to waste it. You know, I did it and I've, I've seen people do it at trial. And at trial, I think it makes them horrible trial lawyers because the judge is like, I have a question about this. They're like, nope, going to keep reading what I got. And I'm like, oh my God, you're awful. And I think... Good lawyers get that about trial, but when it comes to pitching a client, they're like, I have to tell them everything that's what I've got in my outline. I mean, with a judge, you're like, the judge wants to hear that. He doesn't want to hear that. It's a little more obvious. How do you identify that cue with a client? How do you adjust? I have some benefit of doing a lot of trial work to have 
you know, seen judges be like, you're stupid, stop talking. Uh, but clients won't do that because they're not a judge. They're nice. Right. They're kind of sitting like a judge. You don't know this, but you know, they're not going to tell you you're dumb. You don't get that learning experience. And a lot of lawyers never do. So how do you, how do you teach lawyers about that? Is that a thing? What I'm oh, saying? It's totally, totally a thing. And back to, back to snowball system, there's a chapter, chapter nine gives a couple key things and half that chapter is dedicated to a tool we call dynamic meeting prep. How okay. do we prepare for client meetings, include especially business development, although the, the, the six steps also work for delivery work. But the idea is that we're going to play how we practice. So if in our mind, we practice rehearsing our 27 PowerPoint slides in order with that fancy chart on page 12 that we just updated, you know, we are practicing over and over in our mind to go through them in order without any dialogue. But that's yeah. a horrible meeting. Who likes to be on the other side of that? Like, I don't even want to listen to that. I know. It's awful. I just had a birthday Friday. I did not ask for my family to give me a 27-page PowerPoint slide presentation for my birthday. Like, that's not a thing you think about. It's horrible, right? What we want to do is give them a great experience. So the, the goal of a business development meeting is to get another meeting with the same person. Yes. So if they want to, if you thought you're going to talk about X and they want to talk about Y, run with it. Set up that next meeting. You know, say, hey, I'm not the expert in that, but we've got somebody back in the office that is. I would love to set up a time. Let's just set up a time right now for next week. I know Jane's in the office. I'm sure, you know, I'm actually going to see her tomorrow on a practice meeting. Um, I can talk to her then. Let's set up a time next Tuesday. I'll check her calendar when we get back, but let's set a tentative time. And I'll orchestrate a call with you and Jane, and she is our expert in blank, and I know she'll be able to answer that. So now you, you don't have to talk about anything else in the meeting. You got your next meeting, and then you can I, dovetail from there. I love it. So that is the ideal world. The other challenge we have, so I, for my all my partners, I think almost uniquely, I'm happy to sell all of them on their expertise. This love is a immigration guy. The problem is... But most of my partners don't know each other's skills or they don't sell each other or they're not comfortable selling another person, period, at all. I'm comfortable selling any, I mean, this sounds horrible. I'm comfortable selling, I'm comfortable selling anybody's skills in my firm. How do I get somebody else to be there? How do I, how do, I mean, we do these retreats, right? We did an ax throwing one. We did like, everybody stand up and say your ideal client and what you do. We've done that so many times. I feel like it's almost rote. It's not, it's not like sinking in, like they're saying stuff and they're doing stuff, but I don't know how to get them like, this person's good at what they do. Here they are. Is there a way to do that? Sort of. Uh, this is a tough one. One of our, one of our big um, multinational law firm clients, their CMO, he calls this the Gilligan's Island effect because he tries something and every day he wakes back up on Gilligan's Island and they're still not cross-selling. <laughs> you know? I thought that was so clever. Well, that, that's the funny line. But the way you can do it is it's just through those micro improvements. Okay. So think of all the lawyers in the firm and all the mathematically, I love that you, had an, you have an MBA, all the permutations of meeting every single person to every other single person. Right. You know, so we had a, some kind of that's interesting. hexagonal thing with a gazillion sides to it, whatever word it is, once you get up to 80 or 100 or 200 or whatever. So what we've got to do is just, we, it's not a one and done. It's something that just has to be in room for us day over day, week over week, quarter over quarter, year over year, and just facilitating those questions, those connections, building the trust, and then giving, this is where we really come in, is giving people the, the tools to say very specific phrases like, would it be helpful if, 
That's the perfect prefix to a sentence to introduce somebody else. Would it be helpful if I introduced Kareem to you? He would be happy to do X on his dime. And then X is the give to get. Gotcha. And then once somebody does it once, now there's a pretty darn, if that goes well, there's a really high likelihood he's going to introduce Kareem to every client. But now you got all the other partners. And it's just one over one over one over one where the, gotcha. where the magic happens. And if it doesn't go well, that guy's kind of... kind of He's strange. toast. Yeah. There's a bunch of science that's, that uh, the, the title of the whole genre is bad is stronger than good. We tend to remember bad things more than good things and for longer. You can you like know, you think of that feedback form that so you get, you know, 99 people said you're awesome. And one person said he had a bad meeting last November. You remember that, not the rest. Yep. So yeah, so maybe there's some education to be doing like, hey, if somebody gives you a referral in the firm, you got to go over the top. Because if it doesn't yeah. go well, you're not souring your relationship, but you're souring that person's relationship with everybody else. Yes, totally agree. So I, I want to ask Mo, what are the three things if you could, if, so, you know, we have to come up with the three things that we're about. Yep. What are the three things that lawyers or accountants or professionals should think about in your view from, from the snowball system or from whatever, the three yep. most important things that you should take away from, if, if they sit through your entire course and they walk out and there's three, they forget everything but three things. What are those things? Or two or four or whatever? No, nope. no, there's a lot of power in threes. People believe yeah. things in threes more and they remember in threes. So you're onto it. Um, there's a study called when, when three charms, but four alarms. It's really awesome. <laughs> so the three things, we'll go with the three. I love it. That's what we've got. Well, and I'll, and I'll say this with a sort of a, a preface in front of it. We've got a whole course that's free that's built around these three things I'm going to tell you. And it's okay. at bdhabits.com. I know you know about it. Yeah. B for business, D for development, bdhabits.com. Anybody can sign up and they'll get a six-part series of that me talking through these three things with job aids, posters. I mean, it's really phenomenal. I support you and I love it. And I've, I've tried to make most of the lawyers in the firm watch it. Yes. They're actually watching it. I don't know how many have signed up. Um, but I've, I've heard a lot of people have signed up, you know? Yeah. So, so I love it. I'm, I, I promote, I promote it. So three things. Yep. What are they? Yeah. So this is it. So I had to say that. So we've got a call to action, right? Hopefully people sign up at bdhabits.com. So the three things are, we need to get, as experts, we need to really good at managing our opportunities, really okay. good at managing our relationships and really good at managing ourselves. So on the opportunity the, we, in the course, in the free course, we go through the exact steps that human science tells us we need to go through to get a yes. From, and there's four major or five major steps. So writing down our opportunities, whether it's speaking at a conference or, or starting work and bringing in the files and starting a matter, anywhere we need a pe- person to say yes, that's an opportunity. We need to write those down, get them out of our head, know which step we're on, and that tells us what action we can take next. The second piece, managing our relationships, is just really simple, writing down the eight or 10 relationships that are most important to your future success. We've got seven steps there that go from target all the way to the person's actively re- uh, giving us referrals. They're a raving fan of sorts. And those seven steps tell you when, you when you write down your list of eight or 10 folks, you know where you're at on those seven steps and you write down what's next to deepen our relationship to be more helpful. That gets your top relationships out of your head we have so many clients like stick that on their wall, look at those relationships all the time. And these are the people that they want to invest in. Okay. And then the third piece is managing ourselves. And that's super simple. It's just taking 15 minutes once a week, same time every week. Habits are important to be at the same time all the time. 
Same time every week. I do it at four o'clock on Fridays. And that's to take a look at the opportunities, take a look at the relationships, make any updates, figure out what the next step is, and then pick the three most important things we can do that week to move either an opportunity or relationship forward. And you just do three things that next week. If you want to do 20, great, but do these three first. We call those most important things or MIT. So I know we got to close out, but manage your opportunities, manage your relationships, and most importantly, manage yourself. And if you do that, three things a week, 150 or so a year of your highest big impact items and business will start coming in. So it's, so it's really the, the more system managing opportunities, relationship and selves, M-O-R-S. Oh, wow. I like it. That, that's yours. Great. I love it. No. We're going we're gonna to add more value. I don't know. There's something really good here. Yeah, I love it. Like this show, uh, what is it? The Letter Kenny show? Anyway, I won't go into it. The horrible plurals in that Canadian show. Anyway, uh, I digress. Mo, thank you for joining us very, very much. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us again on the Black Letter Podcast. Download us wherever you get your podcast, the iTunes store, Google Play, whatever it is, Spotify. We'll see you next time on Black Letter. Thanks. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.